Section seven of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. July fourteen. How deathlike is sleep in this mountain air! and quick the awakening into newness of life. A calm dawn, yellow and purple, then floods of sun-gold, making everything tingle and glow. In an hour or two we came to Yosemite Creek, the stream that makes the greatest of all the Yosemite Falls. It is about forty feet wide at the Mono Trail crossing, and now about four feet in average depth, flowing about three miles an hour. The distance to the verge of the Yosemite Wall, where it makes its tremendous plunge, is only about two miles from here. Calm, beautiful, and nearly silent, it glides with stately gestures, a dense growth of the slender, two-leaved pine along its bank, and a fringe of willow, purple spirea, sedges, daisies, lilies, and columbines. Some of the sedges and willow boughs dip into the current and just outside the close rank of trees there is a sunny flat of washed gravelly sand which seems to have been deposited by some ancient flood. It is covered by millions of erythria and oxythica, with more flowers than leaves, forming an even growth, slightly dimpled and ruffled here and there, by rosettes of spragua umbellata. Back of this flowery strip there is a wavy, upsloping plain of solid granite, so smoothly ice-polished in many places that it glistens in the sun like glass. In shallow hollows there are patches of trees, mostly the rough form of the two-leaved pine, rather scrawny-looking where there is little or no soil. Also a few junipers, Juniperus occidentalis, short and stout with bright cinnamon-coloured bark and grey foliage, standing alone mostly on the sun-beaten pavement, safe from fire, clinging by slight joints, a sturdy storm-enduring mountaineer of a tree, living on sunshine and snow, maintaining tough health on this diet for perhaps more than a thousand years. Up towards the head of the basin I see groups of domes rising above the wave-like ridges and some picturesque castellated masses, and dark strips and patches of silver fir, indicating deposits of fertile soil. Would that I would command the time to study them! What rich excursions one could make in this well-defined basin! Its glacial inscriptions and sculptures, how marvellous they seem, how noble the studies they offer! I tremble with excitement in the dawn of these glorious mountain sublimities, but I can only gaze and wonder, and, like a child, gather here and there a lily, half hoping I may be able to study and learn in years to come. The drivers and dogs had a lively, laborious time getting the sheep across the creek. The second large stream thus far they have been compelled to cross without a bridge the first being the north fork of the Merced, near Bower Cave. Men and dogs, shouting and barking, drove the timid, water-fearing creatures in a close crowd against the bank, 
but not one of the flock would launch away. While thus jammed, the Don and the Shepherd rushed through the frightened crowd to stampede those in front, but this would only cause a break backward, and away they would scamper through the stream-bank trees and scatter over the rocky pavement. Then, with the aid of the dogs, the runaways would again be gathered and made to face the stream, and again the compacted mass would break away amid wild shouting and barking that may well have disturbed the stream itself and marred the music of its falls, to which visitors no doubt from all corners of the globe were listening. "'Hold them there! Now hold them there!' shouted the Don. "'The front ranks will soon tire of the pressure and be glad to take to the water. Then all will jump in and cross in a hurry.' But they did nothing of the kind. They only avoided the pressure by breaking back in scores and hundreds, leaving the beauty of the banks sadly trampled. If only one could be got to cross over, all would make haste to follow, but that one could not be found. A lamb was caught, carried across, and tied to a bush on the opposite bank, where it cried piteously for its mother. But though greatly concerned, the mother only called it back. That play on maternal affection failed, and we began to fear that we should be forced to make a long roundabout drive and cross the widespread tributaries of the creek in succession. This would require several days, but it had its advantages, for I was eager to see the sources of so famous a stream. Don Quixote, however, determined that they must ford just here, and immediately began a sort of siege by cutting down slender pines on the bank, and building a corral barely large enough to hold the flock when well pressed together. And as the stream would form one side of the corral, he believed that they could easily be forced into the water. In a few hours the enclosure was completed, and the silly animals were driven in and rammed hard against the brink of the ford. Then the Don, forcing a way through the compacted mass, pitched a few of the terrified unfortunates into the stream by main strength. But instead of crossing over, they swam about close to the bank, making desperate attempts to get back into the flock. Then a dozen or more were shoved off, and the Don, tall like a crane and a good natural wader, jumped in after them, seized a struggling weather, and dragged it to the opposite shore. But no sooner did he let it go than it jumped into the stream and swam back to its frightened companions in the corral, thus manifesting sheep-nature as unchangeable as gravitation. Pan with his pipes would have no better luck, I fear. We were now pretty well baffled. The silly creatures would suffer any sort of death rather than cross that stream. Calling a council, the dripping Don declared that starvation was now the only likely scheme to try and that we might as well camp here in comfort, and let the besieged flock grow hungry and cool, and come to their senses, if they had any. In a few minutes after thus being left alone, an adventurer in the foremost rank plunged in and swam bravely to the farthest shore. Then, suddenly, all rushed in pell-mell together, trampling one another under water, while we vainly tried to hold them back. The Don jumped into the thickest of the gasping, gurgling, drowning mass, 
and shoved them right and left, as if each sheep was a piece of floating lumber. The current also served to drift them apart. A long, bent column was soon formed, and in a few minutes all were over, and began buying and feeding, as if nothing out of the common had happened. That none were drowned seems wonderful. I fully expected that hundreds would gain the romantic fate of being swept into Yosemite over the highest waterfall in the world. As the day was far spent, we camped a little way back from the ford, and let the dripping flock scatter and feed till sundown. The wool is dry now and calm. Card-chewing peace has fallen on all the comfortable band, leaving no trace of the watery battle. I have seen fish driven out of the water with less ado than was made in driving these animals into it. Sheep-brain must surely be poor stuff. Compare today's exhibition with the performances of deer, swimming quietly across broad and rapid rivers, and from island to island in seas and lakes, or with dogs, or even with the squirrels that, as the story goes, cross the Mississippi River on selected chips, with tails for sails, comfortably trimmed to the breeze. A sheep can hardly be called an animal. An entire flock is required to make one foolish individual. July 19 Followed the Mono Trail up the eastern rim of the basin, nearly to its summit, then turned off southward to a small shallow valley that extends to the edge of the Yosemite, which we reached about noon, and encamped. After lunch I made haste to high ground, and from the top of the ridge on the west side of Indian Canyon gained the noblest view of the summit peaks I have ever yet enjoyed. Nearly all the upper basin of the Merced was displayed, with its sublime domes and canyons, dark upsweeping forests, and glorious array of white peaks deep in the sky, every feature glowing, radiating beauty that pours into our flesh and bones like heat-rays from fire. Sunshine over all, no breath of wind to stir the brooding calm. Never before had I seen so glorious a landscape, so boundless an affluence of sublime mountain beauty. The most extravagant description I might give of this view to anyone who has not seen similar landscapes with his own eyes would not so much as hint its grandeur and the spiritual glow that covered it. I shouted and gesticulated in a wild burst of ecstasy, much to the astonishment of St. Bernard Carlo, who came running up to me, manifesting in his intelligent eyes a puzzled concern that was very ludicrous, which had the effect of bringing me to my senses. A brown bear, too, it would seem, had been a spectator of the show I had made of myself, for I had gone but a few yards when I started one from a thicket of brush. He evidently considered me dangerous, for he ran away very fast, tumbling over the tops of the tangled manzanita bushes in his haste. Carlo drew back, with his ears depressed as if afraid, and kept looking me in the face, as if expecting me to pursue and shoot, for he had seen many a bear battle in his day. Following the ridge which made a gradual descent to the south, I came at length to the brow of that massive cliff 
that stands between Indian Canyon and Yosemite Falls, and here the far-famed valley came suddenly into view throughout almost its whole extent. The noble walls, sculptured into endless varieties of domes and gables, spires and battlements, and plain mural precipices, all a-tremble with the thunder-tones of the falling water. The level bottom seemed to be dressed like a garden, sunny meadows here and there, and groves of pine and oak, the river of mercy sweeping in majesty through the midst of them, and flashing back the sunbeams. The great Tissiac, or half-dome, rising at the upper end of the valley to a height of nearly a mile, is nobly proportioned and lifelike, the most impressive of all the rocks, holding the eye in devout admiration, calling it back again and again from falls or meadows, or even the mountains beyond. Marvellous cliffs, marvellous in sheer dizzy depth and sculpture, types of endurance. Thousands of years have they stood in the sky, exposed to rain, snow, frost, earthquake and avalanche, yet they still wear the blossom of youth. I rambled along the valley rim to the westward. Most of it is rounded off on the very brink, so that it is not easy to find places where one may look clear down the face of the wall to the bottom. When such places were found, and I had cautiously set my feet and drawn my body erect, I could not help fearing a little that the rock might split off and let me down. And what a down! More than three thousand feet! Still, my limbs did not tremble, nor did I feel the least uncertainty as to the reliance to be placed on them. My only fear was that a flake of the granite, which in some places showed joints more or less open and running parallel with the face of the cliff, might give way. After withdrawing from such places, excited with the view I had got, I would say to myself, Now, don't go out on the verge again. But in the face of Yosemite scenery, cautious remonstrance is vain. Under its spell one's body seems to go where it likes, with a will over which we seem to have scarce any control. After a mile or so of this memorable cliff-work I approached Yosemite Creek, admiring its easy, graceful, confident gestures as it comes bravely forward in its narrow channel, singing the last of its mountain songs on its way to its fate a few rods more over the shining granite, then down, half a mile, in snowy foam, to another world, to be lost in the Merced, where climate, vegetation, inhabitants all are different. Emerging from its last gorge it glides in wide lace-like rapids down a small incline into a pool where it seems to rest and compose its grey agitated waters before taking the grand plunge, then slowly slipping over the lip of the pool basin, it descends another glossy slope with rapidly accelerated speed to the brink of the tremendous cliff, and with sublime, fateful confidence springs out free in the air. I took off my shoes and stockings, and worked my way cautiously down alongside the rushing flood keeping my feet and hands pressed firmly on the polished rock. The booming, roaring water, 
rushing past close to my head, was very exciting. I had expected that the sloping apron would terminate with the perpendicular wall of the valley, and that from the foot of it, where it is less steeply inclined, I should be able to lean far enough out to see the forms and behaviour of the fall all the way down to the bottom. But I found that there was yet another small brow over which I could not see, and which appeared to be too steep for mortal feet. Scanning it keenly, I discovered a narrow shelf, about three inches wide on the very brink, just wide enough for a rest for one's heels. But there seemed to be no way of reaching it over so steep a brow. At length, after careful scrutiny of the surface, I found an irregular edge of a flake of the rock, some distance back from the margin of the torrent. If I was to get down to the brink at all, that rough edge, which might offer slight finger-holds, was the only way. But the slope beside it looked dangerously smooth and steep, and the swift roaring flood beneath, overhead and beside me, was very nerve-trying. I therefore concluded not to venture farther, but did nevertheless. Tufts of artemisia were growing in clefts of the rock nearby, and I filled my mouth with the bitter leaves, hoping they might help to prevent giddiness. Then, with a caution not known in ordinary circumstances, I crept down safely to the little ledge, got my heels well planted on it, then shuffled in a horizontal direction twenty or thirty feet, until close to the outplunging current, which by the time it had descended thus far was already white. Here I obtained a perfectly free view down into the heart of the snowy, chanting throng of comet-like streamers, into which the body of the fall soon separates. While perched on that narrow niche, I was not distinctly conscious of danger. The tremendous grandeur of the fall in form and sound and motion, acting at close range, smothered the sense of fear, and in such places one's body takes keen care for safety on its own account. How long I remained down there, or how I returned, I can hardly tell. Anyhow, I had a glorious time, and got back to camp about dark, enjoying triumphant exhilaration, soon followed by dull weariness. Hereafter I'll try to keep from such extravagant nerve-straining places. Yet such a day is well worth venturing for. My first view of the High Sierra, first view looking down into Yosemite, the death-song of Yosemite Creek, and its flight over the vast cliff. Each one of these is, of itself, enough for a great lifelong landscape fortune. A most memorable day of days. Enjoyment enough to kill, if that were possible. June 16. My enjoyments yesterday afternoon, especially at the head of the fall, were too great for good sleep. Kept starting up last night in a nervous tremor, half awake, fancying that the foundation of the mountain we were camped on had given way and was falling into Yosemite Valley. In vain I roused myself to make a new beginning for sound sleep. The nerve strain had been too great, and again and again I dreamed that I was rushing through the air above a glorious avalanche of water and rocks. One time, springing to my feet, I said, "'This time it is real. All must die. 
and where could mountaineer find a more glorious death? Left camp soon after sunrise for an all-day ramble eastward. Crossed the head of Indian Basin, forested with Abbey's Magnifica, underbrush mostly Ceanothus cordalitus and Manzanita, a mixture not easily trampled over or penetrated, for the Ceanothus is thorny and grows in dense snow-pressed masses, and the Manzanita has exceedingly crooked, stubborn branches. From the head of the canyon, continued on past North Dome, into the basin of Dome or Porcupine Creek. There are many fine meadows embedded in the woods, gay with Lilium Parvum and its companions. The elevation, about eight thousand feet, seems to be best suited for it, saw specimens that were a foot or two higher than my head. Had more magnificent views of the upper mountains and of the great South Dome, said to be the grandest rock in the world. Well it may be, since it is of such noble dimensions and sculpture. A wonderful impressive monument, its lines exquisite in fineness, and though sublime in size, is finished like the finest work of art, and seems to be alive. July 17 a new camp was made to-day in a magnificent silver fir grove at the head of a small stream that flows into Yosemite by way of Indian Canyon. Here we intended to stay several weeks, a fine location from which to make excursions about the great valley and its fountains. Glorious days I'll have sketching, pressing plants, studying the wonderful topography and the wild animals, our happy fellow mortals and neighbours. But the vast mountains in the distance, shall I ever know them? Shall I be allowed to enter into their midst and dwell with them? We were pelted about noon by a short, heavy rainstorm, sublime thunder reverberating among the mountains and canyons, some strokes near, crashing, ringing in the tense, crisp air with startling keenness while the distant peaks loomed gloriously through the cloud fringes and sheets of rain. Now the storm is past, and the fresh-washed air is full of the essences of the flower-gardens and groves. Winter storms in Yosemite must be glorious. May I see them! I've got my bed made in our new camp, plushy, sumptuous, and deliciously fragrant most of it magnifica fir plumes, of course, with a variety of sweet flowers in the pillow. Hope to sleep to-night without tottering nerve-dreams. Watched a deer eating ceanothus leaves and twigs. July 18 Slept pretty well. The valley walls do not seem to fall, though I still fancied myself at the brink, alongside the white plunging flood especially when half asleep. Strange the danger of that adventure should be more troublesome now that I am in the bosom of the peaceful woods, a mile or more from the fall, than it was when I was on the brink of it. Bears seem to be common here, judging by their tracks. About noon we had another rainstorm, with keen, startling thunder, the metallic, ringing, clashing, clanging notes gradually fading into low, base rolling and muttering in the distance. For a few minutes the rain came in a grand torrent like a waterfall, then 
hail, some of the hailstones an inch in diameter, hard, icy and irregular in form, like those oftentimes seen in Wisconsin. Carlo watched them with intelligent astonishment as they came pelting and thrashing through the quivering branches of the trees. The cloud scenery sublime, afternoon calm, sunful and clear, with delicious freshness and fragrance from the firs and flowers and steaming ground. July 19 Watching the daybreak and sunrise, the pale rose and purple sky changing softly to daffodil yellow and white, sunbeams pouring through the masses between the peaks and over the Yosemite domes, making their edges burn. The silver firs in the middle ground catching the glow in their spiry tops, and our camp grove fills and thrills with the glorious light. Everything awakening, alert, and joyful. The birds begin to stir, and innumerable insect people. Deer quietly withdraw into leafy hiding places in the chaparral. The dew vanishes, flowers spread their petals. Every pulse beats high, every life-cell rejoices. The very rocks seem to thrill with life. The whole landscape glows like a human face in the glory of enthusiasm, and the blue sky, pale around the horizon, bends peacefully down over all like one vast flower. About noon, as usual, big bossy cumuli began to grow above the forest, and the rainstorm pouring from them is the most imposing I have yet seen. The silvery zigzag lightning glances are longer than usual, and the thunder gloriously impressive. Keen, crashing, intensely concentrated, speaking with such tremendous energy, it would seem that an entire mountain is being shattered at every stroke. But probably only a few trees are being shattered, many of which I have seen on my walks hereabouts, strewing the ground. At last, the clear, ringing strokes are succeeded by deep, low tones that grow gradually fainter as they roll afar into the recesses of the echoing mountains, where they seem to be welcomed home. Then another, and another peal, or rather crashing, splintering stroke, follows in quick succession, perchance splitting some giant pine or fir from top to bottom into long rails and slivers and scattering them to all points of the compass. Now comes the rain, with corresponding extravagant grandeur, covering the ground high and low with a sheet of flowing water, a transparent film fitted like a skin on the rugged anatomy of the landscape, making the rocks glitter and glow, gathering in the ravines, flooding the streams, and making them shout and boom in reply to the thunder. How interesting to trace the history of a single raindrop! It is not long, geologically speaking, as we have seen, since the first raindrops fell on the newborn, leafless Sierra landscapes. How different the lot of these falling now! Happy the showers that fall on so fair a wilderness! 
scarce a single drop can fail to find a beautiful spot. On the tops of the peaks, on the shining glacier pavements, on the great smooth domes, on forests and gardens and brushy moraines, plashing, glinting, pattering, laving. Some go to the high snowy fountains to swell their well-saved stores, some into the lakes, washing the mountain windows, patting their smooth glassy levels, making dimples and bubbles and spray, some into the waterfalls and cascades, as if eager to join in their dance and song, and beat their foam yet finer. Good luck and good work for the happy mountain raindrops, each one of them a high waterfall in itself, descending from the cliffs and hollows of the clouds to the cliffs and hollows of the rocks, out of the sky-thunder into the thunder of the falling rivers. Some, falling on meadows and bogs, creep silently out of sight to the grass-roots, hiding softly as in a nest, slipping, oozing, hither, thither, seeking and finding their appointed work. Some, descending through the spires of the woods, sift spray through the shining needles, whispering peace and good cheer to each one of them. Some drops with happy aim glint on the sides of crystals, quartz, hornblende, garnet, zircon, tourmaline, feldspar, patter on grains of gold and heavy way-worn nuggets. Some with blunt plap-plap on low bass-drumming fall on the broad leaves of veritrum saxifrage cypripendium. Some happy drops fall straight into the cups of flowers, kissing the lips of lilies. How far they have to go, how many cups to fill, great and small, sails too small to be seen, cups holding half a drop, as well as lake-basins between the hills, each replenished with equal care, every drop in all the blessed throng a silvery new-born star, with lake and river garden and grove, valley and mountain, all that the landscape holds reflected in its crystal depths, God's messenger, angel of love, sent on its way with majesty and pomp, and display of power that make man's greatest shows ridiculous. Now the storm is over, the sky is clear, the last rolling thunder-wave is spent on the peaks, and where are the raindrops now? What has become of all the shining throng? In winged vapour arising some are already hastening back to the sky. Some have gone into the plants, creeping through invisible doors into the round rooms of cells. Some are locked in crystals of ice, some in rock crystals, some in porous moraines to keep their small springs flowing. Some have gone journeying on in the rivers to join the larger raindrop of the ocean. From form to form, beauty to beauty, ever-changing, never-resting, all are speeding on with love's enthusiasm, singing with the stars the eternal song of creation. End of section 7